You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 18, Pontiac's War. Now, last week I talked about a few issues involving religion, taxes, and trade. But no issue seemed more important to colonists than access to new lands. After all, that was what started the last war. Colonists were more ready than ever for more expansion. In some cases, the new settlements were relatively uncontroversial. New England settlers moved by the thousands into the Newfoundland areas where French-speaking Acadians had been expelled a few years earlier. By 1762, there were over 8,500 settlers in Nova Scotia, most of them newly settled from New England. Other settlements not only raised issues with the Indians, but revived age-old conflicts between the colonies regarding their borders. In New Hampshire, Governor Benning Wentworth provided land grants for more than 100 townships over 3 million acres west of the Connecticut River, land which New York claimed for itself and issued competing land claims. This would lead to fights a few years later that I will discuss in a future episode. Connecticut, which claimed its borders stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean, began to populate new settlements in the Wyoming Valley, the same area that Pennsylvania had left, unofficially at least, to the eastern Delaware in order to secure the peace. Other new settlements along the southern shores of the Great Lakes encroached on Mohawk and other Iroquois lands. A few settlers even moved out to Detroit and further into the Illinois region, staking claims near former French outposts now manned by the British Army. Of course, the age-old fight over the Ohio Valley returned to heavy contention. The Delaware and other local tribes had assurances through the Treaty of Easton that the British were only there to expel the French. Once the French were gone, the British would pull back to the east side of the Allegheny Mountains and leave the land to the local tribes. Yet, the massive building project at Fort Pitt and the large and growing Pittsburgh community around it suggested otherwise. The French were gone and the British were moving in. This raised the dispute between Pennsylvania and Virginia over which British colonists would be allowed to cheat the Indians out of the land. The Ohio Company of Virginia renewed its claims to the land, and Pennsylvania, with its own valid legal claims, and the new road built by General Forbes's army leading west, also sought to occupy the same territory. The Ohio Company attempted to appeal to the commander of Fort Pitt, Colonel Henry Boquette, even offering him shares in the company if he helped assist the company in its sale of land titles to squatters throughout the region. Boquette felt bound by the Treaty of Easton and refused. It probably didn't hurt, though, that Boquette was already speculating on land in western Maryland. So, sorry guys, you can't settle here in Ohio, but can I interest you in some really nice land over there in western Maryland? 
the Ohio Company also appealed for help back in London. There, though, the main response was essentially, you know, we're still fighting a war over here in Europe because of your attempts to settle that same area a few years ago. We really don't have time to deal with this now. As a result, there was no organization controlling the settlement. Settlers simply moved into unoccupied land and built cabins. Occasional British Army raids to burn cabins and force out the illegal squatters seemed to do little to deter the flow of new settlers. Ignoring the problem, however, was not a solution, and doing so would have serious consequences. Pennsylvania was doing its best to keep settlers from moving into the Wyoming Valley, where Tidiusung and the Eastern Delaware claimed as their own. You may recall that Tidiusung was the chief who tried and failed to get protection for this land at the conference that eventually led to the Treaty of Easton in 1758. Now, as I already said, Connecticut had some questionable legal claims to this land and began selling the land in the Wyoming Valley to settlers in 1760, even while the claims between the Delaware tribes and the Pennsylvania colonists were still supposedly being debated under the Treaty of Easton. By 1762, more than 150 Connecticut settlers were in the valley, many of them there mapping out towns for a movement of 3,000 settlers the following year. Tidiusung attempted to find some diplomatic solutions with the Pennsylvanians and the Iroquois, but neither seemed willing to help much. He then reached out to the western Delaware and the Ohio Valley, who seemed inclined to help, especially now that they were seeing how the British were breaking similar promises in the Ohio Valley. As Tidiusung prepared for a fight when the Connecticut settlers returned in the spring of 1763, a fire broke out in his home and killed him there is good evidence to suggest that this was no accident. Mingo Seneca Indians in the area most likely killed him to avoid being dragged into a new unwinnable war against the British over another tribe's land. Sadly, though, Tidiusung's death did not prevent war. The threatened invasion of Connecticut settlers into the Wyoming Valley did not happen due to the fear of Indian reprisals but a small hardcore group of about 40 Connecticut settlers remained. Tidiusung's son, Captain Bull, raided this settlement in revenge for his father's death. His warriors took most of the settlers prisoner, but cruelly tortured and scalped ten of them in order to send a message to future potential settlers. The Delaware would not tolerate British settlement of the Wyoming Valley. The message sent by the usually peaceful Indian Delaware expressed a sentiment that tribes across the continent were beginning to make clear. They were not happy about the continuing encroachments on their land. Without being able to play off the French and the British against one another, they would either have to rise up and fight or quietly go into the night. Almost all tribes chose to fight in a previously unseen level of cooperation against the Europeans and their colonists. By 1762, Indian agent William Johnson was hearing warnings about wide-ranging Indian uprisings. Tribes from eastern Pennsylvania and as far west as the Mississippi River were up in arms about the British settlers pouring onto their lands. They thought they had an understanding with the British. Once the French were gone, the British would pull out and leave them alone. It appeared now that the British were saying to them, I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. If the Midwest tribes did not want to end up like the East Coast tribes, 
that is dead, forced further west, or living on increasingly smaller reserves, they would have to push back. Throughout 1761 and 1762, tribal grumbling turned into planning and preparation for massive resistance. In the spring of 1763, everyone seemed waiting for someone to make the first move. On May 7, 1763, Ottawa Chief Pontiac led a band of Ottawa, Potawatomi, and Wyandot to attack Fort Detroit and its garrison of about 125 British regulars. Their initial attempt to seize the fort by surprise failed, so the Indians began a siege. While they could not breach the walls, they prevented any attempt to reinforce or resupply the fort for months. On May 28th, they ambushed and massacred a supply convoy on its way to Detroit. About two-thirds of the 96 men were killed or captured. Some men escaped and returned to Fort Niagara. Warriors took the captives to Fort Detroit, where they tortured, killed, and mutilated the bodies in front of the fort's defenders. Within weeks of the attack on Fort Detroit, different tribes attacked more than a dozen forts all over the continent. On May 16th, Wyandot warriors requested entrance to hold a council at Fort Sandusky in modern-day Ohio. Once inside, the warriors massacred the small 15-soldier garrison, along with several British traders who happened to be there. The Wyandot scalped the dead and burned down the fort. Just over a week later, on May 25th, the Potawatomi gained access to Fort St. Joseph in modern-day Michigan using the same strategy. Again, they killed and scalped the small garrison. On May 27th, another group of Potawatomi killed the commander of Fort Miami, modern-day Fort Wayne, Indiana, and captured the small garrison. A few days later, on June 1st, a group of Wees, Kickapoos, and Maskatoans attacked Fort Owitinen, near modern-day Lafayette, Indiana. They asked for counsel and then captured the 20-man garrison. There, though, the local tribes were actually on pretty good terms with the garrison. They apologized to the commander, saying they had been pressured to participate in the uprising. They did not kill the garrison, but kept them prisoner. The next day, on June 2nd, the Ojibwa and Salk played a game of stickball, similar to modern-day lacrosse, outside of Fort Michilimackinac in what is today northern Michigan, as the local garrison watched. One Indian hit the ball into the gate of the fort. As the players rushed in, they grabbed weapons that native women had smuggled in ahead of time and captured the fort. In the fight, 15 of the 35-man garrison were killed. The Indians would torture and kill five more of their prisoners. From June 16th through 19th, three former French forts in present-day northwest Pennsylvania fell as well. The Seneca took Fort Venango, killing the 12-man garrison. They allowed the commander to live so he could write down their grievances. Once he completed the document, they burned him at the stake. Next, Fort Leboeuf fell, although much of the small garrison escaped to Fort Pitt. Finally, about 250 Ottawa, Ojibwa, Wyandot, and Seneca warriors surrounded Fort Presque Isle, which held out for about two days. The garrison of about 50 soldiers surrendered after being promised safe passage to Fort Pitt. As soon as they left the fort, the warriors massacred them. I should mention, if you want to get a better idea of the range of these forts and where they all are in relation to each other, 
I put a great map up on my website that shows each of the attacks and where they fall on the map. You can view that at amrevpodcast.blogspot.com. Fort Pitt was the largest outpost in the region. It had about 230 soldiers, about half regulars and half militia, and was too large to be taken by surprise. In late May, the Delaware, Shawnee, Mingo, and Seneca attacked the surrounding farms and villages, killing some and sending hundreds of civilians to take refuge in the fort. A large force attacked the fort directly on June 22nd, but could not overcome the defenses. Two days later, Delaware Chief Turtleheart met with two militia officers. Turtleheart pointed out that Fort Pitt remained the only fort standing and demanded they surrender before Indian reinforcements arrived to wipe out the fort and its garrison. Having heard what happened to other garrisons who had surrendered, the soldiers decided to take their chances in the fort. They did, however, give Turtleheart a few gifts as a gesture of goodwill. Two blankets and a handkerchief taken directly from the smallpox hospital at the fort. The siege continued for another month. On July 26, Fort Commander Captain Ecuyer met with several of the besieging chiefs. Again, they attempted to get the garrison to agree to leave the land. Ecuyer told them that he could hold out for years and had no intention of leaving. Fighting continued in earnest, leaving several more killed and wounded on both sides. On August 1st, though, the bulk of Indians besieging the fort left after hearing that a relief column was approaching. Colonel Henry Bouquet led a relief column of about 500 soldiers to break the siege of Fort Pitt. Bouquet had left Fort Ligonier and was marching his force up the Forbes Road. An experienced officer, he was expecting an ambush and would not be disappointed. Seneca chief Cayusuta led a multi-tribal force of Indians by some estimates as many as 500 warriors, to ambush the relief column. On August 5th, about a mile from Bushy Run Station, Goyusada's warriors attacked the column. They had chosen the battlefield to their advantage. The British were in a gully between two hills. The hills had forests for cover, allowing the Indians to fire on the troops, then melt away when the soldiers tried to charge the tree line and engage them. The attack could have easily become a massacre like that of General Braddock at the beginning of the war. But this was not the beginning of the war, and Boquette was no Braddock. Boquette and his men were now experienced Indian fighters. His soldiers, two regiments of Scottish soldiers, the 44th Black Watch and the 77th Highlanders, joined by a largely American regiment, the 60th Royal Americans, were all experienced veterans of the French and Indian War. The 60th even carried tomahawks rather than swords for hand-to-hand fighting. Boquette rallied his men into a defensive formation and spent the first few hours of battle moving in a slow retreat up a hill to a more defensible position. Fighting continued until dark when the British were able to spend a sleepless night throwing up a defensive stockade at the top of the hill. The next morning, fighting resumed. Now, Indians typically left open an avenue of retreat. If the enemy took it, the Indians could run down the fleeing soldiers and kill them more easily than if they remained in their defensive positions. Bouquet saw that path that had been left open and ordered several companies to pull out and head for the tree line. Seeing the retreat, the Indians assaulted the remaining lines, expecting to find a few holdouts to massacre. 
Instead, they found a wall of soldiers who fired on them at close range and then charged in for hand-to-hand combat. At the same time, the soldiers who had retreated came around the hill and attacked the Indians from the other side. The result was chaos for the Indians. Most of them fled the battlefield and were not able to regroup for another attack. Boquet and his men spent the next three days making their way to Fort Pitt, where they were able to relieve the garrison. The battle, which became known as the Battle of Bushy Run, was a hard one. The British took about 25% casualties, that's 125 men dead, wounded, or missing. The Indians are estimated to have taken about half as many casualties. The British, however, had routed the Indians and broken the siege on Fort Pitt. It was, for the most part, the end of the uprising in the east. Fort Detroit, the first fort hit, however, remained under siege. More than 900 warriors from at least six different tribes had joined Pontiac in the siege of the fort. The 120-man garrison was weakening from wounds and illnesses, but continued to hold out through the summer. Upon hearing of the siege, General Amherst allowed his aide-de-camp, Captain James Stalyell, to lead a relief force of about 260 soldiers. Amazingly, Dalyell was able to make it to Detroit and enter the fort in late July without any serious engagement of the besieging Indians. His use of a contingent of rangers under Major Robert Rogers as scouts probably contributed to this success. Once inside the fort, Dalyell proposed to use his soldiers to raid Pontiac's camp and lift the siege. The more experienced commander, Major Henry Gladwin, thought this raid was a mistake. However, he was not confident enough to forbid Captain Dalyell from leading the raid. Attacking a superior force of 900 warriors with a group of 260 men fighting on the Indians' territory might seem like a big mistake. But many such mistakes often turned into glorious victories for the successful officer who went against conventional wisdom. That, unfortunately, was not the case for Captain Dalyell. His force of 260 soldiers met Pontiac and more than 400 warriors. They killed Dalyell in the ensuing battle, as well as several dozen of his men. The bulk of the force retreated back to the safety of Fort Detroit, where the siege continued. By October, both sides were ready for an end to the siege. Gladwin's garrison was pretty close to starvation, as food rations were almost entirely gone. At the same time, Pontiac's warriors were not interested in sitting around all winter watching a stubborn fort. They were ready to call it quits and go home. Pontiac had hoped his uprising would encourage the French, still in the Mississippi Valley, to support his cause and reclaim the land. After receiving word that the French would not help, as they had already agreed to a secret plan to hand over the Mississippi Valley to the Spanish, support for the siege faded. On October 31st, Pontiac lifted his siege and headed further south, looking for easier targets where his warriors could acquire booty and war trophies. Now the key to the prior French and now British control of these inland areas was their ability to bring in resources from outside into the region. The most effective way to do that was over the Great Lakes. To get supplies from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie, they would have to move up the Niagara River. Now many astute readers may be aware that the Niagara River has a very large waterfall that makes shipping difficult. The French at Fort Niagara 
had made use of an Indian trail to bypass the Niagara Falls and carry the supplies overland to Lake Erie. They had retained the goodwill of the local Seneca by providing jobs porting supplies down the road from one lake to the other. When the British took over Fort Niagara, the Seneca continued to do this work for them. Now, the Seneca were part of the Iroquois Confederacy, which remained allied with Britain while most other tribes had gone to war. In 1763, though, the British began to widen the Seneca's portage trail between Niagara and Erie so that they could carry supplies in wagons. The Seneca, who saw their jobs being replaced by British Teamsters, did not react well. On September 14th, a band of over 300 Seneca warriors ambushed a wagon train at a point on the trail known as Devil's Hole, killing or capturing 21 out of 24 men. Two companies of British soldiers nearby rushed to rescue the wagon train. However, they ran into an ambush themselves, with more than 80 of the 130 soldiers killed. The remainder fled back to Fort Niagara. For those who did not escape, the Indians murdered the wounded and then scalped all the bodies. They never took Fort Niagara, but they did prevent any supplies from reaching the western forts via the Great Lakes for the remainder of the war. Next week, the British Army and colonists put down the uprising with a vengeance. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.